Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. My brilliant guest today is someone I am grateful for and inspired by every single day. He's widely recognized for his contributions to the fields of management, leadership, and coaching. He helped create coaching as a discipline. A New York Times number one bestselling author, he's written or edited 51 books, over 3 million copies sold, and translated into 32 languages. Raised in Valley Station, Kentucky, his career journey was not exactly a given. I'm not sure his parents would have expected him to become a Buddhist or one of the elite executive coaches who'd work with over 200 major CEOs and their management teams, serve on the Peter Drucker Foundation Advisory Board, earn his MBA and PhD, and impact the lives of millions of professionals all across the globe. I am thrilled to welcome back to the show my friend and guiding light, Marshall Goldsmith. Marshall, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Ah, oh, Molly, so happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, it is a treat for me and for all the listeners around the globe. To start, I must and want to publicly acknowledge your epic support. You were my inspiration for Say It Skillfully. So your generosity in forming the 100 Coaches community, giving away your know-how for free, was such an amazing example. I mean, a stroke of genius, really. So my videos, this radio show, are thanks to you. Oh, thank you so much. I am more than honored to be your honorary father. Yeah, I'm really, really lucky, yeah, for sure. Okay, my friend, while we wouldn't mess, uh, wish this whole pandemic on the world, you know, a very positive aspect uh, was your latest book, The Earned Life. It's an absolute masterpiece. Uh, but before talking about the book, per se, Marshall, let's start with what it was like for you and dear Lida as COVID descended. Because, you know, you were a road warrior all over the world. You know, you derive a lot of energy um, and satisfaction from being around and with, you know, many people. Um, so I think it'd be interesting for listeners um, for how you personally adapted and then figured out how to make the most of this unexpected situation. Well, you know, uh, this was very hard for my wife, Lida. So so I was only home half time when we were married for 45 years. So having me home all day was not exactly her <laughs> her biggest treat. <laughs> so she's more than happy that I can travel about again. But as it turned out, we were selling our house in Rancho Santa Fe. And I was going to move to just a, get a little tiny place because I thought it'd be temporary. And we'll just hang out there till the house sells. Right? I thought it might take a year or so. And, and we have a home in New York anyway and a home in Nashville. So Lida said, oh, let's just get a nice place. Thank God. So we got a nice um, one-bedroom um, condo on the beach in La Jolla. So we're, if we're stuck for a year, at least we're stuck on the beach in La Jolla, which is a good place to be stuck. And so that was one transition because we lived in the same house for 30 years. Then the other transition was really uh, we developed something called the LPR program. So Mark Thompson and I spent every weekend, six hours with 60 people over COVID. And we had people talk about their lives. And a lot of those conversations led to the book, The Earned Life. And 
he was really touching and they were amazing people. I mean, there's not a secret who they were. People like Curtis Martin, the National Football League Hall of Fame, and Pau Gasol, the famous basketball player, star, Kurt, uh, Telly Leung, Broadway star. We had head of the Olympic Committee, head of the World Bank, head of the Rockefeller Foundation, CEO Cardinal Health, you know, CEO Russell Investments, just phenomenal people every weekend talking about life. And it was a, just a wonderful experience and everyone loved it. So fabulous. Now, how, I mean, you had, and I've been to this, it was a just remarkable home um, and it was a lot of space. And then doing all this from your home in the one bedroom, granted, it was a spectacular view for sure on the ocean. Did you ever feel a little stir crazy? Uh, yeah, I would say eh, actually not too much. I, uh, I'm i pretty adaptable person. And so it's just kind of like, how can I make the best of it? So yeah, I just started coming up with different stuff to do. And um, I ended up doing Zoom calls. And, you know, COVID turned out to be not nearly as bad as I thought it might be. I had very low expectations. As you remember, I used to do Zoom calls almost every day with people in our 100 coaches just to try to have a support group and help people. Did you find anything was hard for you? Because I, I do remember talking to some folks, you know, really the carpet was pulled out from them. Business went to, to zero and it was really, really a struggle. Did, did you, did, would you say you struggled? Not in that sense. I mean, I'm in a stage of my career where if everything disappeared tomorrow, it wouldn't make that much difference. So from a financial point of view, it didn't make a difference. But from a, from a personal point of view, I think I was really focused more on helping other people than I was my own drama, because for me, it wasn't that much of a trauma. Yeah, that's really lucky. So now being away from your family, I mean, you're close. How long did you go without seeing you know, grandkids and, uh, and Kelly and Brian? About a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a long time. And then in these conversations, you know, I guess, um, and this is really the genesis of the hundred coaches is just creating such a sense of safety um, and a sense of belonging. What was uh, eye-opening or surprising or enlightening for you? I think one of the most surprising things for everyone is that we're all human beings. So if you read the bios of all these people, you know, you might think that somehow they were better than average people, but you listen to people talk day after day after day after day about their lives and we've all got same kids with drug problems and you've got parents with Alzheimer's and you've got, you know, psychological issues and people get divorced and all the human drama of life doesn't escape anyone. The other thing is for the people in this group, particularly, there's no saying it's lonely at the top. It used to be lonely at the top. Today, it is much lonelier at the top with social media and the potential for being embarrassed by anything you say. The people at this level are afraid to say much of anything and just being in an environment where they can talk to each other and act like human beings and not get beat up for it is, you know, it was really a blessing. I remember one man said, you know, I feel so happy one hour a week. I get to act like a human being. And, yeah. you know, we had some rules, you know, we practice feed forward and everybody, the rules of feed forward. You ask for ideas and people give you ideas and you say, thank you. And if they're great ideas, you say thank you. And if they're stupid ideas, you say thank you anyway. And you just try to support each other. And uh, one of the guys in the group is Mike Kaufman, CEO of Cardinal Health. And Mike said, you know, one thing I've loved about this group is we're accountable, yet nobody's being judged. 
So you get a nice combination of people who are accountable every week talking about what went well and what didn't go well. Yet there wasn't a sense of judgment or, you know, getting a grade or being put down. Ah, I love that. I love that. So were you working on a book? So just share with, with us how the conversations and then the book, you know, how they fueled the book. Well, again, as you know, my four best books, I didn't write. They're all written by my friend, Mark Ryder. And so we have a great partnership. He's my agent and he's the co-author and I come up with ideas. So he is a member. He's been a member of these groups. So for him, it was great. He got to actually experience all the stuff I was learning as I was learning it. So the book evolved. The book evolved when listening to people talking about their lives. They talk about things like that show up in the book, building credibility. They talk about, uh, oh, things like empathy that we that I talk about in the book. And then, and then you know, we built on my friend Alan Mulally's business plan review process and incorporated that into something called the life plan review. So every week, everyone would talk about their life, and then they then each person would we, we, everyone would try to help them. And then the next person, the next person, the next person. And, and also most people felt like they learned they learned as much or more from listening to people talk about other people's issues than they learned about people talking about their issues, mainly because our issues aren't that different. Or more similar than not, for sure. Um, as you, this was, we talked about this because this book is very different from the earlier works, you know, which were a little bit perhaps more prescriptive and helping people in specific ways. Before we get to the book, how, how would you say the book and the process of writing the book has helped you? Well, I think the book has been very, very helpful to me in a lot of ways. The one theme in the book that I think has helped me the most is not getting really overly focused on the outcomes of life, not getting overly focused on results. I mean, if you look at the book, I the definition of the earned life says, we are living an earned life when the choices, risks, and efforts that we make in each moment align with an overarching purpose in our lives, regardless of the eventual outcome. And the key there is regardless of the outcome. Yeah, it's so powerful. And it seems, you know, you hear high-end athletes talk about this. You know, you're not like, I got to win Wimbledon. Well, I mean, we know we're trying to win, but that can't be the point. And to to thrive in the process of the learning and the growing is huge. That's interesting to hear that because I always thought you were not as outcomes focused. So that's really great that that reinforced that for you. Um, you know, this we're going to get to this notion of regret and fulfillment. When you think about earlier Marshall and current Marshall, how would you, how would you take us through the how fulfillment has changed for you over the years? Well, again, you have to, as you mentioned, I was brought up in a very, very low income, low education environment. The high school I went to in Kentucky was ranked next to last place in, in Kentucky in academic achievement, which is hard to even understand for most people. And the elementary school was worse. We had an outhouse. We didn't have indoor plumbing. We had an outhouse the first four years I was in school. So I wasn't brought up in yuppie prep. So the odds on me ended up where I am from where I came from were very close to zero. And I, I just feel like I've been incredibly fortunate in life. My mother spent hours and hours just trying to teach me. She went to college two years and was a teacher. I've had the privilege and blessing of having some great teachers in UCLA, 
Peter Drucker, Francis Hesselbein, Alan Mulally. You've met many of these people who have just been guidelines for me. So, you know, a lot of life is luck, and I feel very, very blessed. As you know, um, the whole idea of the 100 coaches came from Aisha Bursell did a program. She said, who are your heroes? And my heroes are these kind and generous people and who many of you have met, many of, many of them you have met. And she said, why don't you be more like them? And that's when I decided to adopt people and teach them all I know for free. And the only price is when they get old, they do the same thing, which, and that project has been such a blessing for me as well. Yeah, I've always said the thing about, the thing that's so palpable about you is just this groundedness. There's this kind of a rock about, you know, you being solid in yourself and, and, you know, you feel that because you can, those are the people who you can be generous because you're not really, there's no worry about you, you know, and it, it's just such a, it's hard for people. I think when people say, oh, if you serve others, it helps you. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have these issues, but I've seen it and I felt it when you can really not worry, if you will, about yourself, it just, the universe somehow makes that happen. It's, um, it's really great. Yeah. Shout out to I say we love her. Um, the book. So let's so take folks, you know, just so folks know you have to read this book. It, it, I have had clients, I've had friends, people pick it up and they kind of can't stop. So just, you know, share with folks the, the, what you like about the book. Well, you know, this book, as you mentioned, is a little different than my other books. This book is really more of a Buddhist philosophy book. I'm a philosophical, not a religious, but a philosophical Buddhist. And the book is really, to me, a modern times Buddhist philosophy book that it really applies basically Hindu and Buddhist philosophy to daily life today. And so I like I like this book. I mean, to me, it is my most personal book by far. It's got the best reviews of any book I've ever written. So it's gotten great feedback from everybody. And I think it's really much more a way of looking at life. It's a way of saying, all right, how do I live here? And just some of the key points in the book, the every breath paradigm, I love that, the concept of impermanence, the idea of we're constantly restarting our life and re-earning our life, not getting fixated, but the outcomes. Just a lot of stuff about the book, I think, is very practical. So this, I think people may be nodding their head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Impermanence. You know, you've worked with a, a lot. I mean, times have changed, but these leaders that you've worked with, you know, t t take us through, you know, f what percentage of them do you think r resonate with this when you work with them? You know, people are in these busy, got to make the stock price, got to hit the numbers. You know, it's, you know, it's pretty easy to say, sure, be, think about impermanence. Um, so I'm just kind of curious when you get people in this headspace and you've earned it now and you can kind of relax a little bit, making it real for folks, you know, how do you coach them through? Oh, I think it's, I mean, I'm not adverse at all to achievement. Let's talk about two different issues. Uh, achievement and then a sense of making peace and happiness in life. And the problem is when we confuse these two. That's where people get off the rails. And it's not like, by the way, Molly, you know who I work with. I'd hardly say they're not achievers. Mm -hmm. So one, one of the guys that endorsed my book is Albert Berla. Albert's the CEO of Pfizer. And a couple of, you know, a few months ago, I said, Albert, how's it going? How was last year? Well, you know, I get this vaccine, which is very good and saved a lot of lives. And then we have this pill and stock values at all time high and employee engagements through the roof and uh, uh, CEO of the year in the United States and on and on. So I said, Albert, what's your problem? He said, I have a huge problem. Next year. Next year. 
if Albert's value as a human being is what he achieved last year, he can pack it in. He's never going to do that the rest of his life. I hope he doesn't do it the rest of his life. We don't want him to do it ever the rest of his life. Michael Phelps won 25 gold medals. What do you think of doing after winning the 25th medal? Killing himself. Why? Couldn't achieve more. Well, the problem with achievement is if you get fixated on results, it's a fool's game for a couple of reasons. One, you don't control the outcomes. The outcomes of what we're going to achieve are based on many variables that we don't control all of them. And then number two, what happens after you do achieve? Well, yeah, let's say you achieve something. How long does that bring lasting peace and happiness? A day, a week, a month? Not very long. You got to achieve more and more and more and more and more. And the Buddhist term is called the hungry ghost. You're always eating, but you're never full. You're always eating, but you're never full. And one of the great people in the group of 60 was Safi Bacall. Safi's a brilliant guy, wrote a book called Loon Shots. He's a member of our 100 coaches. Um, Safi started four businesses, made tens of millions of dollars, has a PhD in physics from Stanford, consulted the presidents, you know, on and on. So Safi said the main thing he learned in our groups together was, and he learned this from Curtis Martin, is he used to think that happiness was a dependent variable based on achievement. And if I achieve, I will be happy. He said he finally realized that happiness and achievement are independent variables. Some people achieve a whole lot and they're very happy, like Curtis Martin. Some people achieve a whole lot and they're miserable. Other people achieve absolutely nothing and they're happy. Others achieve nothing and they're miserable. He said, I finally realized happiness and achievement were an independent variable, which I, and I said to him, I said, Safi, that's great because let's face reality. You already have a PhD in physics from Stanford. You started four businesses. You're worth tens of millions of dollars. You've written a New York Times bestseller and consulted with presidents. You're already a 99.999 in terms of achievement. Do you really believe that getting up to a 99.9999 is going to make you a whole lot happier? <laughs> At a certain level, it becomes insane. Look at the people in these groups. How much have they achieved, right? They're all they're all 99.99 in terms of achievement now. And you know, since some of them were very happy and some of them weren't. So what if we what do you think clicked for let's just use Safi in this case? I'm gonna get back to Albert's of the world, but what do you think clicked for him? Well, He's so smart, for- right? You're so smart. You're like, hey, how could you not figure that out? Oh well, he didn't figure it out, obviously. And, you know, on a typical day, he'd give himself about a four or five on, did I do my best to be happy? And I said, Savi, that's insane. You've got a million blessings. Why aren't you happier? He said, I, he never thought of it. Look, I, I can tell you some of the people you've met. I, I did in my book, Triggers, I talk about three medical doctors I interviewed. And one of them is Dr. Jim Kim, who you've met a couple of times. And, you know, Dr. Jim has a simultaneous MD and PhD with honors from Harvard and anthropology in five years. Normal human, get a PhD in anthropology from Harvard, takes eight years. He got a, he got one in five years. He got a medical degree at the same time. And then he went on to be, you know, president of Dartmouth, head of the World Bank. And then Dr. Raj Shah, head of the U.S. Agency for International Development at age 37. Now he's head of the Rockefeller Foundation. And Dr. John Nosworthy, the head of the Mayo Clinic. How smart are these guys? All three ask him this question. On an average day, how would you score and did I do my best to be happy? And they all had the same answer. Never dawned on me to be happy. Never thought about it. 
I said, well, that's interesting. You're a medical doctor. You're a medical doctor. Did it dawn on you you're going to die? Did they cover that in medical school, that death thing? I said, yeah, they kind of covered that death. I said, do you think that's a stupid question? They said, it's a smart question. I forgot to ask. Wow, that is awesome. Dr. Jim is fave. He was on the show and shared just so generously about his journey. And um, and I got like just rave reviews. He's just... Um, He's top, top, top. So, so I am curious about the Alberts of the world where they are because there's there's CEOs, there's people listening here, and they're like, okay, I did, I crushed it. And so, how do you help them? They can intellectually get it. I could see them intellectually getting, but not feeling it. So, so what are how, what are some of the ways you help them to give themselves permission to not judge it as like point nine 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 more? Well, what you've got to say is. I've got to start my life from now and I can't live in the past in a positive or negative sense. I'll talk about, let's say the previous you won the Super Bowl. Well, what happens to previous Super Bowl winners? Well, look at the numbers of the National Football League. They're awful, bankrupt, divorced, depressed, suicidal. Why? They're living in the past. They're trying to relive that glory, the same Michael Phelps problem. They're, re they're living in the past. You, you can't do that. You can't do that. So people just need to realize I'm starting over every day. Now, there's a great, there's one type of book, Molly, that always has the same ending. And they, and they lived happily ever after. And they lived happily ever after. Now, that book is unfortunately called a fairy tale. That's not the way life works. Life, we're always starting over, and you never, quote, get to this place. Now, why don't people understand this? To me, it's a miracle in the West anybody does understand it. Why? So, Molly, what is the major Western art form? You may have seen this drama before. There is a person. person is sad. Oh, so sad. They spend money. They buy a product, and they become happy. This is called a commercial. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, but how many millions of times have we been hammered with this message? Happiness is out there. It's out there. Well, happiness is not out there. It's in here. Happiness is not on the outside. It's on the inside. There's no product you're going to buy to make you happy. There's no achievement that's going to make you at peace. I love it. Uh, the could you could you share the how you were introduced to to the Buddhism and you know how you learned it you know I mean I my dad actually had done some of this had very intensive sessions and I'm I'm curious your own uh, journey on understanding embracing learning and um, you know being Buddhist from a philosophical standpoint. Well, I started studying Buddhism at about age 19, so I was pretty much a kid. I probably read 400 books on Buddhism, Hinduism, or related Buddhist philosophy. So I've studied more than that than I did what I got a PhD from UCLA in. So I spent years and years studying Buddhism. Now, there are many schools of Buddhist thought. So when someone tells you they're a Buddhist, it actually doesn't tell you much of anything. Buddha said, only do what I teach if it works for you. If it works for you, just don't do it. Well, given that, the interpretations of Buddhism wildly different. My school of Buddhism is a very simple school. Buddha was brought up very rich, or at least the story of Buddha. He was brought up very rich. 
And his father always thought, Buddha will be great if I give him more. He'll be happy with more. So he kept giving Buddha more and more. And Buddha lived in a bubble, a little bubble. One day he was able to sneak outside of this bubble existence. And what did he learn? People get old. Think that's not so good. Sneaks out again. Second time, people get sick. Oh, it's not so pretty. Number three, people die. He goes, wait a minute, old, sick, and die? It doesn't matter how much you get. Old, sick, and die is in the cards here. That's going to happen. Buddha thought, there's more things not working for me. He went out in the woods and tried to be happy with less. He starved himself. You know what he learned? Didn't work either. Finally, one night, Buddha realized something. Can never be happy with more. Can never be happy with less. It's the only one thing I can ever be happy with, what I have. There's only one time I can be ever happy. Now, there's only one place here. This is it. This is heaven. This is hell. This is nirvana. It's just listening to a podcast with Marshall and Molly. Here, here it is. <laughs> Folks, you have arrived. Be happy here and now. <laughs> here it is. Welcome, welcome to Nirvana on this podcast. This is it. If it's not here, it's not anyplace else. Yeah, I, I, I'm so smiley about this, and I, um, I want to bottle it up for folks. When you, um, you know, you work with folks all over the world, and I am curious if you notice folks of, of different cultures embrace it's easier for them to embrace or get um or are there folks that you work with they don't no matter what you say and i don't quite seem to get it oh i as you mentioned i've been to 102 countries i work all around the world most of the people i coach are not from the united states so you know i've traveled constantly and uh for example i've been to india 40 times and a large part of my book is based on learning from the Bahavad Gita. So you think, well, I bet they all understand that. Not really. Typically, they're often more westernized than we are. So I, I think most of the challenges around the world, at least for the people I work with, are incredibly consistent. And, you know, probably half the people I coach are billionaires. And you know something, Molly? Uh, a billionaire in India and a billionaire in France and the United States and South America, they really don't live in different countries. They live in the same country. It's called billionaire land. And their lives are really not that different. <laughs> they have the same problems as other billionaires. And they have a lot more in common with other billionaires around the world than they have in common with poor people who they live next door to. Have you, uh, you know, I, I am curious, and I know you had, alleged that you retired. We know that you didn't retire, but you alleged that you did for a bit. Um, what folks, you know, are there folks that you're trying and they're, they, they're not getting it? Does everyone just get it? Or you just are such so good at picking these days that you realize the ones that are workable or not? I'm, I'm really curious about this. Well, you know, in my coaching, I only work with people that care and want to change. I, I never try to convert anybody to anything. So, you know, my whole life is I only work with volunteers. If somebody ever asked me, proved to me this is worthwhile, you know what I'd say? Mm, probably isn't. How do I know this is a good idea? Probably not. It's a bad idea. Just ignore it. So I'm really, you know, Molly, I've learned an important lesson in my career through life. I, 
My name is Marshall Goldsmith, not Jesus Christ. So I really don't spend a lot of time trying to save people or get people to do what they don't want to do or convert people or sell people on something. I just do what I do. And if people like it, that's great. If they don't like it, that's great too. Do something else. Oh, I hope everyone is taking notes on this. Okay. This is like the number one thing is you be who you are, you know, work with the willing and life is good. And and it's, <laughs> folks who, who don't know you well, that is, that is Marshall's life is good. That t-shirt, we should put your initials by it because you, uh, you walk it like nobody else, Marshall. Um, the regret topic. I love the part in the book, um, perhaps share maybe some of the surprising regrets that you um, heard about things that may have helped shape the book? Well, you know, I, I'm going to, I don't know if you knew the one about me because, well, first I'm going to ramble a little bit about the aspirations, ambitions, and actions. And then I'm going to get back to regrets uh, because I'm going to connect the two. First, I, I say we need to align three things. What are our aspirations? Our aspirations are a higher purpose. The answer to that question, why? They don't have a timeline or a deadline. They stretch out for, for across time. Our ambitions are related to our achievements, our goals. We've talked a lot about that already. And they do have a specific timeline. And then our actions are, what are we doing now? And have a great life, we really need to align all three of these things. And some people are over-focused on their aspirations. They live up in their heads. They have lofty ideals, but they're you know, they don't achieve anything and they're not really very good about having enjoying life or even the people around them. Many human service leaders, for example, love humanity. They just can't stand human beings. Well, it's very, very common. They love humanity, but they can't stand humans. Well, that's, they're stuck in that aspiration phase and they, they miss day-to-day -day life. The people I coach, and we've talked about this, tend to be achievaholics who are stuck in the achievement phase. And that's what I talked about with, with uh, Safi and the other examples. My, my, one of my great mistakes was when I got lost in the action phase. If you look at our uh, ancestors, they were largely lost in the idea of just doing what's in front of them with no time horizon. They didn't have time for lofty goals or large ambitions. They were just trying to get by. Well, I, one of the great mistakes I made, and I talk about it in the book, is I'm 27, and I go surfing. So I'm with my buddies, Hank and Harry, right? And I actually, I'm riding a boogie board, and I got lucky, right, a couple of ways. So we get more and more macho, go for it, go for it, go for it. So I decide I'm going to ride this nine-foot wave. <laughs> now, if you're not a surfer, a nine-foot wave looks like a mountain coming at you, right? And, of course, immediately what happened is I flipped over and broke my neck. And, you know, I've, I broke my neck in two places. I'm very lucky I'm not dead or quadriplegic. And I talk about the mistake I made back to these three levels of the aspiration, the ambition, and the action. I was focused on the day-to-day -day immediate gratification of getting a cheap thrill. It never done. What is this? Was this connected to any deeper value I had in life? Zero. Was it connected to any kind of higher aspiration? None. Was there some goal I was going to achieve as if I'm going to be a good surfer someday? Absolutely not. I was just looking for a cheap thrill and almost died. Well, <laughs> that's an example of a mistake I made. So if we look at our lives, you know, a lot of our mistakes are when we, we get these three things out of alignment. Uh, the politician who starts out with lofty aspirations, but then just tries to get elected over and over again and becomes corrupt because they have to get elected. They start buying votes. 
or somebody who makes a lot of money, but then gets into cocaine or short-term drug use because they want a short-term thrill. So as we go through life, it's always important to align these three things. Oh, and one final one. One part of the book I love is the marshmallow story. I love the marshmallow story. So you know that marshmallow research? You got this guy, Walter Mitchell, did research on his kids. And he says, I give you one marshmallow. If you eat one, you get one. But if you wait, kid, oh, two, oh. And then, of course, his longitudinal research indicates that the kids that eat one all become, you know, useless losers. And the kids that eat two all get PhDs from Stanford. Well, the base point of the research is delayed gratification is good. What he didn't do in the study, though, he didn't take the kid that delayed gratification to get two and say, kid, wait a little bit more. You get three. Oh, wait some more. Four, five, ten, a hundred, a thousand. And where does the story end? An old man sitting in a room waiting to die, surrounded by uneaten marshmallows. Well, sometimes you got to eat the marshmallow. Sometimes you just eat the marshmallow. And Jack Welch almost died. I talk about this in the book. And one of my friends is a friend of his. He said, Jack, you almost died. Triple bypass surgery. What'd you learn? You know what Jack Welch said? Why am I drinking the damn cheap wine every night? <laughs> Jack, 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 Jack Welch, he's got this incredible wine collection, right? And every night he's drinking cheap wine. He was waiting for the wine in his wine collection to appreciate in value. He's worth hundreds of millions of bucks. He's waiting for some stupid wine to go up a few bucks. You know, he said, this is crazy. I'm Jack Welch. What am I doing? He made one commitment after he almost died. You know what it was? No more cheap wine for me. Oh my God. I love that. I love that story. You know, I, I, as we were saying this, I'm kind of laughing because I can see more than a few times where I might buy something that I really love to wear. Like it's fabulous. Uh, and I never wear it because it's like too special. <laughs> and it reminds <laughs> me that my mom once had this like really great, you know, China. And then she didn't realize because that it was really great. And so she had been using it as day wear and then she put it away and never used it. But now you're like, just use the China. <laughs> what, are you, what are you saving it for? <laughs> oh my God. That's incredible. Um, anything else you want to share on the book before I, I kind of segue to what's in store for you? Because I'm sure people are wondering what's uh, what's Marshall got up his sleeve. Any other thoughts you want to share on the? It's an amazing book, folks. Everyone's just got to you got to read this book. Now, there's one part about the book that I found very counterintuitive. Well, a lot of the book is somewhat counterintuitive too. Um, a couple of thoughts on the book before I move on. One of them is someone, you know, Carol Kaufman came up with one idea that's in the book and that's, and people in our little group loved it. And it's the idea that carry a little card around with you, wherever you go in every different meeting says, am I being the person I want to be right now? And, you know, I've read about 400 books on Buddhism and you could go to this eight day mindfulness class. You know, I'll save you the 400 books, skip the mindfulness class, just carry your card around and look at it before you do anything and say, am I being the person I want to be right now? If the answer is yes, you don't need the 400 books. You don't need the mindfulness class. That's all you need. Just remember that every day. Am I being the person I want to be right now? And the other thing that I like in the book that I think is totally different is the part about empathy. Empathy. Now, Molly, I have a question for you. Did you ever think of empathy as a bad thing? 
I see things as a uh, vice and virtue all the time. So yes, I have seen it be a bad thing. I don't think of it as a bad thing, but I have seen it um, in ways that weren't helping. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the book, I talk about the dark side of empathy, how empathy can sometimes be incredibly positive, yet in some cases, empathy can be incredibly negative. And the example I love in the book about empathy, because it's so counterintuitive, is the example of a hedge fund manager. Now, part of empathy is I care about you and what's going on with you. I care. Well, caring sounds good. Better than not caring. Caring sounds very positive. So I'm watching one hedge fund manager who's worth about a billion dollars interview another hedge fund manager who's worth $3 billion. Now, this is a long time ago when $3 billion was a lot of money. Well, the billion dollar guy says to the other guy, why don't you have your own fund? You could make a fortune. Everybody would sign up for it. You know what the old guy said? I'm not as good. The young guy said, why aren't you as good? You know, more now than ever. You know, you seem so great. He said, you know, I started caring. He said, I started caring. He said, when I was young, yeah, I made tens of billions of dollars and obviously have a little bit left. And I lost tens of billions of dollars. And you know what? It never bothered me one minute. I didn't care. He said, I got older. I started caring. I started thinking, wait a minute, this is someone's retirement account. This is a kid's college fund. And he said, I became much less risk-oriented and much less effective. That's why I only invest my own money now. Well, this is why surgeons don't operate on their children. They care too much. So I talk about various types of empathy, and I talk about when they're good and when you need to let them go. One of the people in our group is Dr. Jim Downing. Jim's head of St. Jude's Children's Hospital. And if you've ever been there, it's tough. He's got to watch kids die every day. Well, you know, he's got a wife at home. He's got kids at home. He's got grandkids. He can't carry that home with him. He needs to learn to let go of that stuff. So I like the chapter because it talks about when we need to have empathy and also just as important when we need to let go of that empathy. Yeah, that's very powerful. The letting go folks. Marshall is also king of helping people let go. This is a very huge learning that I have I have benefited. And I have seen countless people benefit too. And you got to be able to make that, you got to be able to make that call. And that can be an umbilical cord, sort of cut it. You just have to be able to like move on. Um, and it can be really, really hard. You know, one thing I, I will call out that I think, you know, in this, a lot of what you're about is just this notion of realizing when we're judging, when we're judging ourselves, when we're judging other people. And again, not to make judging necessarily good or bad or right or wrong, but being aware of when we're labeling things that maybe they just are, and we don't have to create a negative or a positive spin on that. And that can really be very freeing. Um, oh. and, and, and that's helped me a lot. I mean, I have to say that personally, just being aware of when I was kind of putting on some label for something and then holding back, um, kind of gave me a lot of permission to see things more clearly for what they are. You know, I think that's true for others. And it's, as you said, it's also true for ourselves. One of the most popular quotes I ever put on LinkedIn was that, you know, forgive other people for being who they are and forgive yourself for expecting them to be someone else. Forgive other people for being who they are and forgive yourself for expecting them to be someone else. People are who they are. And another element of that is self-forgiveness. So a key component of the book is every time I take a deep breath, it's a new me. 
And everything that happened before was done by an infinite set of people called the previous me's. Well, you know, for everyone listening, just take a deep breath. Think of all the previous years. Think of all the gifts they've given to you that's here. And if anybody gave you that many things, what should you say? Thank you. Thank you. Well, don't sit there and judge yourself and over-criticize yourself and be able to forgive yourself. Yeah. So powerful. So powerful. Okay. Um, just so I don't forget in the end, is there a particular site where people can go for the book? They go to Amazon, anywhere you want to send them? Oh, yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah, pretty much anywhere. Amazon is easier, Barnes and Noble or any place like that. Yeah. Okay, that's great. And then for folks who haven't, Marshall was also on my 100th episode of my podcast. So you get a little more deep dive into his story, which is just phenomenal. So I encourage folks to go there and also uh, for all resources, say it skillfully. I have say it skillfully.com. So um, we, you know, so with this book, you've got it out. I know you were really crazy to get it out. So it's particularly nuts. Um, as you've gotten the book out and you have a chance to take a breath, um, have your priorities changed at all? You know, it's interesting. Uh, a book is like to me a little bird getting out of the nest. You know, you got to <laughs> you got to get the bird ready to get out of the nest. And so I, I feel I am very, very happy. It's kind of out of the nest. It's a New York Times bestseller. It sold a lot of copies. It uh, it's got better critical reviews than any book I've ever done. So now I'm I'm really I'm really happy with the book. I think the thing though that helped me most in the book was. I didn't know the book would or would not be a success as such, because you never know. But I pretty much made peace with be happy whatever happens. Make peace with whatever happens and just do your best. And, you know, a lot of those daily questions I use, they start with, did I do my best too? Yeah, you know, that's a really important point. Is and that's all in life we can do is Harry Kramer, one of the hundred coaches, said. Somebody said, how do you sleep at night? You've had to lay people off. You've had to fire people as a CEO. You've had to do tough things. How can you sleep at night? He said, I always sleep at night. Just to answer two questions. Did I do what I thought was right? And did I do my best? If the answer is yes and yes, I can sleep. Well, you know, I felt like with a book, really it's back to that credibility must be earned twice chapter in the book. You got to write a great book. You got to make sure somebody buys the book. You got to promote the book, which is hard, hard work. You know, Molly, one person you know very well is Hubert Jolie. And Hubert wrote a book, a great book called The Heart of Business. And, you know, I love Hubert. And, you know, I told Hubert when he's leaving the CEO Best Buy, I said, Hubert, look, you want to write a book, you got to get out there and sell it. You got to be a book salesman. Many CEOs write books and then they think, well, I'm great. This book will be great. I'll just write a book. I don't have to go out and promote it. And nobody buys it. Well, you don't want to write a book that nobody buys. If you're going to do this, do it right. And I'm so proud of him. He worked so hard. He worked so hard to promote that book. And it's a great book. And he was proud of it. And I'm proud of him because he got over his ego. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so it's so powerful just because, you know, people should or could benefit or what have you doesn't mean they do it. And to have the uh, humility, I think, to just get in there and to do whatever it takes. Um, it's huge. I mean, you've had a lot of practice of it. So I, I, I trust you've learned a lot. I am kind of curious as you did this, were there any particular learnings from all what 50 previous experiences that you put to work that were particularly effective? 
Yeah, I would say the one thing that really with has helped me with this book is making peace with the process and not getting fixated on the outcomes. And, you know, just not getting fixated on the outcomes. It's uh, it's a very, Molly, you went to UCLA yeah, and yeah. I went to UCLA and, you know, we had the best basketball coach in the world, John Wooden. And what did John Wooden say? He never focused on winning. He just said, do your best. If you do your best and win, be proud. You do your best and lose, be proud. You know, just do your best is all you can do. And I think that's just a great way to look at life. He won a lot, but his major focus in life was not teaching kids to win. His major focus in life was just teaching, teaching kids to try. Very wise words. You know, I'm going to connect the dots for our listeners. Here you have someone and you've been studying this Buddhism since you were 19. You've been really incorporating it. You create this masterpiece, but really what I'm taking away is, you know, it really is you, when you put yourself into the work, it really landed for you, Marshall, to really land the learnings of it. Right. So even though you're, you know, for all, most of us so advanced in this, what I'm, what I'm hearing is just, it really hit home in a new way for you to actually give yourself permission to say, yeah, I am, I am about the process. I'm going to try really, really hard. I'm going to do everything I know. And I don't control the outcomes, you know, and you know, that works out. Um, it works out great, but I also see you being very free about that. And that's just, you know, I, I just would wish that for everyone, because I think when you're in that flow state, the chances of having great outcomes are, um, are tremendously higher. Um, Marshall, what, uh, are you working on now? Well, you know, this is an interesting question. Now I'm going through this interesting existential, uh, issue that occurs when any, when any achievement is done, like you graduate from high school or something or college or whatever, it's now what, and, you know, I'm looking at the rest of my life and, you know, a lot of what I'd like to do is really focused on our 100 Coach Project and specifically providing support to other people. I, I really, in terms of writing, I want to do more work as a second author. One thing I'm very proud of is the book, How Women Rise, that I did with Sally Helgeson. Now, Sally is the lead author, and, you know, she did 85% of the content of the book. I helped a little bit. But I think it helped her a lot just to get the ball over the line and and help sell the book and promote the book. And and I love the book. And I'm so proud of being able to help her. Um, another woman you've met is Nankandi. She's teaching all of my stuff now to high potential leaders in Africa. I'm not I'm not an expert on women in leadership, but Sally is. And I'm certainly not an expert on high potential leaders in Africa. And Nankandi is. So really moving forward to the next phase for me is what I want to do is kind of be, and this sounds kind of strange, but kind of be a junior partner who is not the major person uh, that's the star, but more in the helping role, as I was in that book, How Women Rise, or as I am with Nankandi, or as I've been with a lot of people. I love how you are so intentional about this. And I want to call out that this is this notion of being the ally. And obviously, it's, you know, it's not just your wisdom and, you know, all, you know, it's just the, who you are and 
your marketing engine and, and your ability to be associated with someone helps legitimize, right? Folks who may have really great ideas, but don't quite have as big of a mouthpiece yet. And it's just so incredibly game-changing. I mean, just to say it's skillfully thing, it's just a great example. And you're being able to genuinely put support and have people know that you believe in something really helps that other person, you know, pulling them up, you know, I, and I think Sally, how, I mean, I love the book, how women rise. It's really how, how do we help everyone rise? I think it, it, and that book is so relevant beyond just women. So I, I love the example that you're setting Marshall. And I really want to encourage other folks, you know, whether you're more seasoned or whether you're a domain expert to not underestimate gosh, how game-changing your kind of show of confidence, vote of support for someone um, can be in opening huge doors. Um, I love, I love, I love, I love that. Um, anything else about what would comment on the coaching field and the coaching project? Uh, I mean, I know when I first chatted you, you were like, Molly, we didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. There was no coaching. You were just kind of making it up. And now that it's, you know, much, it's more formalized. I'm just wondering how, um, how you feel about that, where you see coaching going? Well, number one, I'm certainly not an expert on the field of coaching. So I guess probably the answer to the broader question is I don't know. Um, on the other hand, my own coaching has changed a lot. I used to strictly be a behavioral coach and my whole area of expertise was helping successful leaders achieve positive long-term change in behavior. And I'm pretty much focused strictly on that. And if you do a Google search, helping successful leaders in quotes, the first 500 hits, 450 are me. So I kind of, you know, I kind of dominated that market. And now though, I really also focus trying to help people have a better life. And what happened is now so many of the people I coach, half of them, as I said, are billionaires. What am I supposed to do? Move you up from 4 billion to 4.1 billion? What does it matter anyway? that they're really, what they want is not to learn how to be more effective or how to achieve something. They've already achieved more than they can imagine. What they really want is just to learn how to have a little better life. So as I've gotten older now, I, I think a lot more of my focus is just try to help people have a little better life and maybe help them have the people around them have just a little better life. And I find that with a lot of the clients I work with now, that's more important than becoming more effective or certainly more important than making money or some achievement. Um, what, what is like for you personally, you know, what's, how would you word the, the fulfillment that you get from the work you do? Oh, very simple. If one person sends me an email after our little podcast and says, this podcast helped me have a better life. That's it. I think it's phenomenal. Um, you know, Marshall, I have a lot of words to describe you, but I've never asked you this. What, what would be three words or three phrases that you would describe yourself with? Be happy now. <laughs> <laughs> We love it. Okay. I'm going to let you have the last word here. Top takeaway or two for our listeners. Well, I always like to finish with the same thing. And even if they've heard it before, it's always good. Take a deep breath. Imagine you're 95 years old and you're just getting ready to die. Before you take the last breath, you're given a beautiful gift. 
the ability to go back in time and talk to the person that's listening to me right now. What advice would the wise 95-year-old you who knows what mattered in life and what didn't and what was important and what wasn't have for the you that's listening to me right now? Um, whatever you're thinking now, do that. In terms of a performance appraisal, that's the only one that's going to matter. That old person says you did the right thing you did. That old person says you made a mistake you did. You don't have to impress anybody else. Some friends of mine interviewed old folks who are dying. What advice would you have? On the personal side, three themes. Theme number one, three words, be happy now. Not next week, not next month, not next year. Not the great Western disease, I'll be happy when. Be happy now. Number two is friends and family never get so busy climbing the ladder of success you forget the people you love. That's a mistake. And then number three, if you have a dream, just go for it. Just go for it. You, you may not win, but you tried. Business advice isn't much different. Number one, life is short. Have fun. Do stuff you love doing. And if you don't love what you're doing, try to find something else to do. And then number two, do whatever you can, can to help people. And the main reason to help people has nothing to do with money or status or getting ahead. The main reason to help people is much deeper than 95-year-old you will be proud of you because you did and disappointed if you don't. And then finally, just go for it. The world's changing. Your industry's changing. Do what you think is right. Might not win. Gave it a shot. Old people, we usually don't regret the risk we take and fail. We usually regret the risk we fail to take. And finally, Molly, I'm so proud of you. You're the one of the world's best honorary daughter-in-law. Couldn't imagine having a better honorary daughter than you. You're a good human being. You work hard. You um, have a great show. You have a great life. So I'm very proud to know you. Marshall, I love you. You know, with you, life is good. It's joyous. It's just joyous. I have the biggest smile. I want to thank you for who you are what you do, how you help all of us around you uh, to be the best versions of ourselves, to be happy now. So thanks for being part of the solution. I'm looking very forward to seeing you in Nashville next month and uh, in the city in the fall. You take good care, Marshall. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Oh, folks, it just does not get any better. Okay, my thought for the week, of course, from Marshall, the pursuit of an earned life is not a goal for a distant time, but a way of living every moment. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Marshall's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? 
do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 